Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 5. Chapter 28. Ahab. For several days after leaving Nantucket, nothing above hatches was seen of Captain Ahab. The mates regularly relieved each other at the watches, and for aught that could be seen to the contrary, they seemed to be the only commanders of the ship. Only, they sometimes issued from the cabin with orders so sudden and peremptory that, after all, it was plain they but commanded vicariously. Yes, their supreme lord and dictator was there, though hitherto unseen by any eyes not permitted to penetrate into the now sacred retreat of the cabin. Every time I ascended to the deck from my watches below, I instantly gazed aft to mark if any strange face were visible, for my first vague disquietude touching the unknown captain now in the seclusion of the sea became almost a perturbation. This was strangely heightened at times by the ragged Elijah's diabolical incoherences uninvitedly returning to me, with a subtle energy I could not have before conceived of. But poorly could I withstand them, much as in the other moods, I was almost ready to smile at the solemn whimsicalities of that outlandish prophet of the wharves, but whatever was in apprehensiveness or uneasiness, to call it so, which I felt, yet whenever I came to look about me in the ship, it seemed against all warranty to cherish such emotions, for though the harpooners with the great body of the crew were a far more barbaric, heathenish, and motley set than any of the tame merchant ship companies which my previous experiences had made me acquainted with, still I ascribed this, and rightly ascribed it, through the fierce uniqueness of the very nature of that wild Scandinavian vocation in which I had so abandonedly embarked. But it was especially the aspect of the three chief officers of the ship, the mates, which was most forcibly calculated to allay these colorless misgivings and induce confidence and cheerfulness in every presentiment of the voyage. Three better, more likely sea officers and men, each in his own different way, could not readily be found, and they were, every one of them, Americans, a Nantucketer, a Vineyarder, a Cape Man. Now, it being Christmas when the ship shot out from her harbor for a space, we had biting polar weather, though all the time running away from it to the southward, and by every degree and minute of latitude which we sailed, gradually leaving that merciless winter and all its intolerable weather behind us. It was one of those less lowering, but still gray and gloomy enough mornings of the transition, when with a fair wind the ship was rushing through the water with a vindictive sort of leaping and melancholy rapidity, that as I mounted to the deck at the call of the forenoon watch, so soon as I leveled my glance toward the taffarail, foreboding shivers ran over me. Reality outran apprehension. Captain Ahab stood upon his quarter-deck. 
There seemed no sign of common bodily illness about him, nor of the recovery from any. He looked like a man cut away from the stake, when the fire has overrunningly wasted all the limbs without consuming them, or taking away one particle from their compacted, aged robustness. His whole high, broad form seemed made of solid bronze, and shaped in an unalterable mold, like Cellini's cast Perseus, threading its way out from among his gray hairs and continuing right down one side of his tawny scorched face and neck, till it disappeared in his clothing, you saw a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. It resembled that perpendicular seam sometimes made in the straight lofty trunk of a great tree when the upper lightning tearingly darts down it and without wrenching a single twig peels and grooves out the bark from top to bottom ere running off into the soil, leaving the tree still greenly alive, but branded. Whether that mark was born with him or whether it was a scar left by some desperate wound, no one could certainly say. By some tacit consent, throughout the voyage little or no allusion was made to it, especially by the mates. But once Tashtigo Sr., an old gay-head Indian among the crew, superstitiously asserted that not till he was full forty years old did Ahab become that way branded, and then it came upon him, not in the fury of any mortal fray, but in an elemental strife at sea. Yet this wild hint seemed inferentially negatived. By what a gray manxman insinuated, an old sepulchral man who, having never before sailed out of Nantucket, had never ere this laid eyes upon wild Ahab. Nevertheless, the old sea traditions, the immemorial credulities, popularly invested this old manxman with preternatural powers of discernment, so that no white sailor seriously contradicted him when he said that if ever Captain Ahab should be tranquilly laid out, which might hardly come to pass, so he muttered, then whoever should do that last office for the dead would find a birthmark on him from crown to soul. So powerfully did the whole grim aspect of Ahab affect me and the livid brand which streaked it that for the first few moments I hardly noticed that not a little of his overbearing grimness was owing to the barbaric white leg upon which he partly stood. It had previously come to me that this ivory leg had at sea been fashioned from the polished bone of a sperm whale's jaw. Hey, he was dismasted off Japan, said the old gay-head Indian once. But like his dismasted craft, he shipped another mast without coming home for it. He has a quiver of them. I was struck with the singular posture he maintained. Upon each side of the Pequod's quarter-deck, and pretty close to the mizzen shrouds, there was an auger hole bored about half an inch or so into the plank. His bone legs steadied in that hole, one arm elevated and holding by a shroud, Captain Ahab stood erect, looking straight out beyond the ship's ever-pitching prow. There was an infinity of firmest fortitude, a determinate, unsurrenderable willfulness in the fixed and fearless forward dedication of that glance. Not a word he spoke, nor did his officers say aught to him, though by all their minutest gestures and expressions they plainly showed the uneasy, if not painful, consciousness of being under a troubled master eye. And not only that, but moody, stricken Ahab stood before them with a crucifixion in his face in all the nameless, regal, overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. 
Ere long, from his first visit in the air, he withdrew into his cabin. But after that morning, he was every day visible to the crew, either standing in his pivot hole or seated upon an ivory stool he had, or heavily walking the deck. As the sky grew less gloomy and deed began to grow a little genial, he became less and less a recluse, as if, when the ship had sailed from home, nothing but the dead, wintry bleakness of the sea had then kept him so secluded. And, by and by, it came to pass that he was almost continually in the air, but, as yet, for all that he said, or perceptibly did, on the at least sunny deck, he seemed as unnecessary there as another mast. But the Pequod was only making a passage now, not regularly cruising. Nearly all whaling preparatives needing supervision the mates were fully competent to, so that there was little or nothing out of himself to employ or excite Ahab now. And thus chased away, for that one interval, the clouds that layer upon layer were piled upon his brow, as ever all clouds chose the loftiest peaks to pile themselves on. Nevertheless, ere long the warm, warbling persuasiveness of the pleasant holiday weather we came to seemed gradually to charm him from his mood. For as when the red-cheeked dancing girls, April and May, trip home to the wintry, misanthropic woods, even the barest, ruggedest, most thunder-cloven old oak will at least send forth some few green sprouts to welcome this glad-hearted visitants, so Ahab did, in the end, a little respond to the playful allurings of that girlish air. More than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look, which in any other man would have soon flowered out into a smile. Chapter 29 Enter Ahab. To him, Stubb. Some days elapsed, and ice and icebergs all astern, the Pequod now went rolling through the bright Quinto Spring, which at sea almost perpetually reigns on the threshold of the eternal August of the Tropic. The warmly cool, clear, ringing, perfumed, overflowing, redundant days were as crystal goblets of Persian sherbet, heaped up, flaked up with rose-water snow. The starred and stately knights seemed haughty dames in jeweled velvets, nursing at home in lonely pride the memory of their absent conquering earls, the golden-helmeted sons. For, sleeping man, t'was hard to choose between such winsome days and such seducing nights, but all witcheries of that unwaning weather did not merely lend new spells and potencies to the outward world. Inward, they turned upon the soul especially when the still mild hours of eve came on. Then, memory shot her crystals as the clear ice most forms of noiseless twilights, and all these subtle agencies more and more they wrought on Ahab's texture. Old age is always wakeful, as if the longer linked with life, the less man has to do with aught that looks like death. Among sea commanders, the old greybeards will oftenest leave their berths to visit the night-cloaked deck. It was so with Ahab, only that now, of late, he seemed so much to live in the open air that, truly speaking, his visits were more to the cabin than from the cabin to the planks. Feels like going down to one's tomb, he would mutter to himself for an old captain like me to be descending this narrow scuttle to go down to my grave-dug berth. 
So, almost every 24 hours, when the watches of the night were set, and the band on deck sentineled the slumbers of the band below, and when, if a rope was to be hauled upon the forecastle, the sailors flung it not rudely down as by day, but with some cautiousness dropped it to its place for fear of disturbing their slumbering shipmates. When this sort of steady quietude would begin to prevail, habitually the silent steersman would watch the cabin scuttle, and ere long the old man would emerge, gripping at the iron banister to help his crippled way. Some, considering touch of humanity, was in him, for at times like these he usually abstained from patrolling the quarter-deck, because to his wearied mates, seeking repose within six inches of his ivory heel, such would have been the reverberating crack and din of that bony step, that their dreams would have been on the crunching teeth of sharks. But once... The mood was on him too deep for common regardings, and as with heavy lumber-like pace he was measuring the ship from taffrail to mainmast, Stubb, the old second mate, came up from below with a certain unassured, deprecating humorousness, hinted that if Captain Ahab was pleased to walk the planks, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise, hinting something indistinctly and hesitatingly about a globe of tau and the insertion into it of an ivory heel. Ah, Stubb, thou didst not know Ahab then. Am I a cannonball, Stubb? said Ahab, that thou wouldst wad me in that fashion. But go thy ways, I had forgot, below to thy nightly grave, where such as ye sleep between shrouds, to use ye to the filling one at last, down, dog, and kennel. Starting at the unforeseen concluding exclamation of the so suddenly scornful old man, Stubb was speechless a moment, then said excitedly, I am not used to be spoken to that way, sir. I do not but less than half like it, sir. Avast, gritted Ahab between his set teeth and violently moved away, as if to avoid some passionate temptation. No, sir, not yet said Stubb, emboldened. I will not tamely be called a dog, sir. Then be called ten times a donkey, and a mule, and an ass, and be gone, or I'll clear the world of thee. As he said this, Ahab advanced upon him with such overbearing terrors in his aspect that Stubb involuntarily retreated. I was never served so before without getting a hard blow for it, muttered Stubb as he found himself descending the cabin scuttle. It's very queer. Stop, Stubb. Somehow now I don't well know whether to go back and strike him or what's that? Down here on my knees and pray for him. Yes, I don't well know whether to go back and strike him or what's that? Down here on my knees and pray for him. Yes, that's the thought coming up in me, but it would be the first time I ever did pray. It's queer. Very queer, and he's queer too, eh? Take him fore and aft. He's about the queerest old man Stubb ever sailed with. How he flashed at me, his eyes like powder pans. Is he mad? Anyway, there's something on his mind, as sure as there must be something on deck when it cracks. He ain't in his bed now, either, more than three hours out of the twenty-four. And he doesn't sleep then. Didn't that doughboy, the steward, tell me of the morning he always finds the old man's hammock clothes all rumpled and tumbled? 
and the sheets down at the foot and coverlid almost tied into knots, and the pillow a sort of frightful hot as though a baked brick had been on it. A hot old man. I guess he's got what some folks ashore call a conscience. It's a kind of tick-dolly-row, they say, worse nor a toothache. Well, well, I don't know what it is, but the Lord keeps me from catching it. He's full of riddles. I wonder what he goes into the afterhold for every night. His doughboy tells me he suspects. What's that for? I should like to know. Who's made appointments with him in the hold? Ain't that queer now? But there's no telling. It's the old game. He goes for a snooze, damn me. It's worth a fellow's while to be born into the world, if only to fall right asleep. And now that I think of it, that's about the first thing babies do. That's a sort of queer, too. Damn me, but all things are queer, come to think of them. But that's against my principles. Think not is my eleventh commandment, and sleep when you can is my twelfth. So here goes again, but how's that? Didn't he call me a dog? Blazes. He called me ten times a donkey, and piled high a lot of jackasses on top of that. He might as well have kicked me and done with it. Maybe he did kick me, and I didn't observe it. I was so taken all aback with his brow, somehow. It flashed like a bleached bone. What the devil's the matter with me? I didn't stand right on my legs. Coming afoul of that old man has sort of turned me wrong side out. But the Lord, I must have been dreaming, though. How? 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 But the only way is to stash it. So here goes to the hammock again, and in the morning I'll see how this plaguy juggling looks over by daylight. Chapter 30. The Pipe When Stubb had departed, Ahab stood for a while, leaning over the bulwarks, and then, as had been usual with him of late, calling a sailor of the watch, he sent him below for his ivory stool and also his pipe. Lighting the pipe at the binnacle lamp and planting the stool on the weather side of the deck, he sat and smoked. In Old Norse times, the thrones of the sea-loving Danish kings were fabricated, saith tradition, of the tusks of the narwhal. How could one look at Ahab then, seated on that tripod of bones, without bethinking him of the royalty it symbolized? For a Khan of the plank, and a king of the sea, and a great lord of leviathans was Ahab. Some moments passed, during which the thick vapor came from his mouth in quick and constant puffs, which blew back against his face. How now? he soliloquized at last, withdrawing the tube. This smoking no longer soothes, oh, my pipe. Hard it must be with me if thy charm be gone. Here have I been unconsciously toiling, not pleasuring, eh, and ignorantly smoking to windward all the while to windward, and with such nervous whiffs, as if, like a dying whale, my final jets were the strongest and fullest of trouble. What business have I with this pipe? This thing that is meant for sereneness to send up mild white vapors among mild white hairs, not among torn iron-gray locks like mine. I'll smoke no more. He tossed the still-lighted pipe into the sea. The fire hissed in the waves. The same instant the ship shot by the bubble the sinking pipe made. With slouched hat, Ahab lurchingly paced the planks. Chapter 31. Queen Mab Next morning, Stubb accosted Flask. Such a queer dream, King Post, I never had. 
You know the old man's ivory leg? Well, I dreamed he kicked me with it. And then I tried to kick back. Upon my soul, little man, I kicked my leg right off. And then, presto, Ahab seemed a pyramid, and I, a blazing fool, kept kicking at it. But what was still more curious, Flask, you know how curious all dreams are. Though all this rage that I was in, I somehow seemed to be thinking to myself that, after all, it was not much of an insult. That kick from Ahab, why, thinks I, what's the row? It's not a real leg, only a false leg. And there's a mighty difference between a living thump and a dead thump. That's what makes a blow from the hand, Flask, fifty times more savage to bear than a blow from a cane. The living member, that makes the living insult. My little man, and I think I to myself all the while, mind, that I was stubbing my silly toes against that cursed pyramid. So confoundedly contradictory was it all, all the while, I say, I was thinking to myself, What's this leg now? By a cane, a whalebone cane, yes, thinks I. It was only a playful cudgeling, in fact. Only a whale-boning that he gave me, not a base kick. Besides, thinks I, look at it once, why, the end of it, the foot part, why, the small sort of end it is, whereas if a broad-booted farmer kicked me, there's a devilish broad insult. But this insult is whittled down to a point only. By now comes the greatest joke of the dream flask. While I was battering away at the pyramid, a sort of badger-haired old merman with a hump on his back takes me by the shoulders and slews me round. What are you about? says he. Slid, man. But I was frightened. Such a fizz. But somehow, next moment, I was over the fright. What am I about, says I, at last, and what business is that of yours? I should like to ha know, Mr. Humpback, do you want a kick? But Lord Flask, I had no sooner said that than he turned round his stern to me, bent over, and dragging up a lot of seaweed he had for a clout, what do you think I saw? Why, thunder alive, man, his stern was stuck full of marlin spikes with the points out. Says I, on second thoughts, I guess I won't kick you, old fellow. Wise stub, said he, wise stub, and kept muttering all the time a sort of eating of his own gums like a chimney hag. Seeing he wasn't going to stop saying over his wise stub, wise stub, I thought I might as well fall to kicking the pyramid again. But I had only just lifted my foot for it when he roared out, Stop that kicking! Hello, says I. What's the matter now, old fellow? Look ye here, he says he. Let's argue the insult. Captain Ahab kicked ye, didn't he? Yes, he did, says I. Right here it was. Very good, says he. He used his ivory leg, didn't he? Yes, he did, says I. Well then, says he. Why, stub, what have you got to complain of? Didn't he kick you with a right good will? It wasn't a common pitch-pine leg he kicked you with, was it? No, you were kicked by a great man with a beautiful ivory leg, stub. It's an honor. I consider it an honor. Listen, wise stub. In old England, the greatest lords think it a great glory to be slapped by the queen and made garter knights of it. But be your boast, stub, that you were kicked by old Ahab and made a wise man of it. Remember what I say, be kicked by him, account his kicks honors, and on no account kick back, for you can't help yourself, wise stub. Don't you see that pyramid? With that, he all of a sudden seemed somehow in some queer fashion to swim off into the air. I snored, rolled over, and there I was in my hammock. Now what do you think of that, dream flask? I don't know. Seems sort of foolish to me, though. Maybe, maybe, but it's made a wise man of me, Flask. Do you see Ahab standing there sideways, looking over the stern? Well, the best thing you can do, Flask, is to let the old man alone. Never speak to him. Whatever he says, hello. What's that he shouts? Hark! Masthead there. Look sharp, Ollie. There are whales hereabouts. If you see a white one, split your lungs for him.
What do you think of that now, Flask? Ain't there a small drop of something queer about that, eh? A white whale! Do you mark that, man? Look ye, there's something special in the world. Stand by for it, Flask. Ahab has that. That's bloody on his mind. But mum, he comes this way. Chapter 32. Cytology. Already we are so boldly launched upon the deep, but soon we shall be lost in the unshored, harborless immensities. Ere that comes to pass, ere the Pequod's weedy hull rolls side by side with the barnacled hulls of the Leviathan, at the outset it is but well to attend to a matter almost indispensable to a thorough appreciative understanding of the more special Leviathanic revelations and illusions of all sorts which are to follow. It is some systematized exhibition of the whale in his broad genera that I would now fain put before you. Yet it is no easy task, the classification of the constituents of a chaos, nothing less here is essayed. Listen to what the best and latest authorities have laid down. No branch of zoology is so much involved as that which is entitled cytology, says Captain Scoresby, A.D. 1820. It is not my intention, were it in my power, to enter into the inquiry as to the true method of dividing the cetacea into groups and families. Utter confusion exists among the historians of this animal, sperm whale, says Surgeon Beale, A.D. 1839. Unfitness to pursue our research in the unfathomable waters, impenetrable veil covering our knowledge of the cetacea, a field strewn with thorns? All these incomplete indications but serve to torture us naturalists. Thus speak of the whale the great Cuvier and John Hunter and Lesson, those lights of zoology and anatomy. Nevertheless, though the real knowledge there be little, yet of books there are a plenty, and so in some small degree with cytology, or the science of whales, many are the men, small and great, old and new, landsmen and seamen, who have at large, or in little, written of the whale. Run over a few. The authors of the Bible. Aristotle, Pliny, Aldrovandi, Sir Thomas Brown, Gessner, Ray, Linnaeus, Rondelcius, Willoughby, Green, Artidi, Siebold, Brieson, Martin, Lacapidi, Bonatier, Desmarest, Baron Cuvier, Frederick Cuvier, John Hunter, Owen, Scoresby, Beale, Bennett, J. Ross Brown, the author of Miriam Coffin, Olmsted, and the Reverend T. Cheever. But to what ultimate generalizing purpose all these have written, the above-cited extracts will show. Of the names in this list of whale authors, only those following Owen ever saw living whales. And but one of them was a real professional harpooner and whaleman. I mean, Captain Scoresby. On the separate subject of the Greenland or right whale, he is the best existing authority. But Scoresby knew nothing and says nothing of the great sperm whale compared with which the Greenland whale is almost unworthy mentioning. And here be it said that the Greenland whale is an usurper upon the throne of the seas. He is not by any means the largest of the whales. 
Yet, owing to the long priority of his claims and the profound ignorance which, till some 70 years back, invested the then-fabulous or utterly unknown sperm whale, and which ignorance to this present day still reigns in all but some few scientific retreats and whale ports, this usurpation has been every way complete. Reference to nearly all the Leviathanic allusions in the great poets of past days will satisfy you that the Greenland whale, without one rival, was to them the monarch of the seas. But the time has come at last for a new proclamation. This is Charing Cross. Hear ye, people all, the Greenland whale is deposed. The great sperm whale now reigneth. There are only two books in being which at all pretend to put the living sperm whale before you, and at the same time, in the remotest degree, succeed in the attempt. Those books are Beale's and Bennett's, both in their time surgeons to English South Seas whale ships and both exact and reliable men. The original matter touching the sperm whale to be found in their volumes is necessarily small, but so far as it goes is of excellent quality, though mostly confined to scientific description. As yet, however, the sperm whale, scientific or poetic, lives not complete in any literature. Far above all other hunted whales, his is an unwritten life. Now, the various species of whales need some sort of popular comprehensive classification, if only an easy outline one for the present, hereafter to be filled in all its departments by subsequent laborers. As no better man advances to take this matter in hand, I hereupon offer my own poor endeavors. I promise nothing complete, because any human thing supposed to be complete must for that very reason infallibly be faulty. I shall not pretend to a minute anatomical description of the various species, or, in this place at least, too much of any description. My object here is simply to project the draft of a systematization of cytology. I am the architect, not the builder. But it is a ponderous task. No ordinary letter sorter in the post office is equal to it. To grope down into the bottom of the sea after them, to have one's hands among the unspeakable foundations, ribs, and very pelvis of the world, this is a fearful thing. What am I that I should easily hook the nose of this Leviathan? The awful tauntings in Job might well appall me. Will he, the Leviathan, make a covenant with thee? Behold, the hope of him is vain, but I have swam through libraries and sailed through oceans. I have had to do with whales with these visible hands. I am in earnest, and I will try. There are some preliminaries to settle. First, the uncertain, unsettled condition of this science of cytology is in the very vestibule attested by the fact that in some quarters it still remains a moot point whether the whale be a fish in his System of Nature, A.D. 1776, Linnaeus declares, I hereby separate the whales from the fish. But of my own knowledge, I know that down to the year 1850, sharks and shad, alewives and herring, against Linnaeus's express edict, were still found dividing the possession of the same seas with the Leviathan. The grounds upon which Linnaeus would fain have banished the whales from the waters, he states as follows. On account of their warm biolocular heart, their lungs, their movable eyelids, their hollow ears, panum intratum, feminum mammis lactatum, and finally, ex lege nature jure meretuc. 
I submitted all this to my friends Simeon Macy and Charlie Coffin of Nantucket, both messmates of mine, in a certain voyage, and they united in their opinion that the reasons set forth were altogether insufficient. Charlie profanely hinted they were humbug. Be it known that, waiving all argument, I take the good old-fashioned ground that the whale is a fish, and call upon holy Jonah to back me. This fundamental thing settled, the next point is, in what internal respect does the whale differ from other fish? Above, Linnaeus has given you those items, but in brief they are these, lungs and warm blood, whereas all other fish are lungless and cold-blooded. Next. How shall we define the whale? By his obvious externals, so as conspicuously to label him for all time to come? To be short, then, a whale is a spouting fish with a horizontal tail. There you have him. However contracted, that definition is the result of expanded meditation. A walrus spouts much like a whale, but the walrus is not a fish, because he is amphibious. But the last term of the definition is still more cogent as coupled with the first. Almost any one must have noticed that all fish familiar to landsmen have not a flat, but a vertical or up-and-down tail, whereas among spouting fish the tail, though it may be similarly shaped, invariably assumes a horizontal position. By the above definition of what a whale is, I do by no means exclude from the Leviathanic Brotherhood any sea creature hitherto identified with the whale by the best-informed Nantucketers, nor, on the other hand, link with it any fish hitherto authoritatively regarded as alien. I will note as a footnote, I am aware that down to the present time the fish-styled lamatins and dugongs, pigfish and sowfish of the coffins of Nantucket, are included by many naturalists among the whales, but as these pigfish are a noisy, contemptible set, mostly lurking in the mouths of rivers and feeding on wet hay, and especially as they do not spout, I deny their credentials as whales and have presented them with their passports to quit the kingdom of cytology, returning from my footnote. Hence, all smaller spouting and horizontal-tailed fish must be included in this grand plan of cytology. Now then, I come to the grand divisions of the entire whale host. First, according to magnitude, I divide the whales into three primary books, subdivisible into chapters, and these shall comprehend them all, both small and large. 1. The folio whale. 2. The octavo whale. 3. The duodecimo whale. As a type of the folio 1, present the sperm whale. Of the octavo, the grampus. Of the duodecimo, the porpoise. Folios. Among these, I have included the following chapters. 1. The sperm whale. 2. The right whale. 3. The finback whale. 4. The humpback whale. 5. The razorback whale. 6. The sulfur bottom whale. Book 1. Folio. Chapter 1. Sperm whale. This whale, among the English, of the old vaguely known as Trumpa whale and the Physeter whale, and the anvil-headed whale, is the present cachalot of the French, and the potsfish of the Germans, and the macrocephalus of the longwords. He is, without doubt, the largest inhabitant of the globe, the most formidable of all whales to encounter, the most majestic in aspect, and lastly, by far, the most valuable in commerce. 
he being the only creature from which that valuable substance spermaceti is obtained. All his peculiarities will, in many other places, be enlarged upon. It is chiefly with his name that I now have to do. Philologically considered, it is absurd. Some centuries ago, when the sperm whale was almost wholly unknown in his own proper individuality, and when his oil was only accidentally obtained from the stranded fish, in those days spermaceti, it would seem, was popularly supposed to be derived from a creature identical to the one known in England as the Greenland or right whale. It was the idea also that this same spermaceti was then that quickening humor of the Greenland whale, which, in the first syllable of the word, literally expresses. In those times also, sperm aceti was exceedingly scarce, not being used for light, but only as an ointment and medicament. It was only to be had from the druggists, as you nowadays buy an ounce of rhubarb. When, as I opine, in the course of time the true nature of spermaceti became known, its original name was still retained by the dealers, no doubt to enhance its value by the notion so strangely significant of its scarcity. And so the appellation must at last have come to be bestowed upon the whale from which this spermaceti was really derived. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 2, Right Whale. In one respect, this is the most venerable of the leviathans, being the one first regularly hunted by man. It yields the article commonly known as whalebone or baleen, and the oil specially known as whale oil, an inferior article in commerce. Among the fishermen, he is indiscriminately designated by all the following titles. The Whale. The Greenland Whale. The Black Whale. The Great Whale. The True Whale the right whale. There is a deal of obscurity concerning the identity of the species thus multitudinously baptized. What then is the whale which I include in the second species of my folios? It is the great mysticetus of the English naturalists, the Greenland whale of the English whalemen, the Berlin ordinaire of the French whalemen, the Growlins walfish of the Swedes. It is the whale which for more than two centuries past has been hunted by the Dutch and English in the Arctic seas. It is the whale which the American fishermen have long pursued in the Indian Ocean, on the Brazil banks in the Norwest coast, and various other parts of the world designated by them right whale cruising grounds. Some pretend to see a difference between the Greenland whale of the English and the right whale of the Americans, but they precisely agree in all their grand features, nor has there yet been presented a single determinate fact upon which to ground a radical distinction. It is by endless subdivisions based upon the most inconclusive differences that some departments of natural history become so repellingly intricate. The right whale will be elsewhere treated of at some length with reference to elucidating the sperm whale. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 3, Finback. Under this head I reckon a monster which, by the various names of Finback, Tallspout, and Long John, has been seen almost in every sea and is commonly the whale whose distant jet is so often described by passengers crossing the Atlantic in the New York packet tracks. In the length he attains and in his baleen, the Finback resembles the right whale but is of a less portly girth and a lighter color approaching to olive. 
His great lips present a cable-like aspect, formed by the intertwisting, slanting folds of large wrinkles. His grand distinguishing feature, the fin from which he derives his name, is often a conspicuous object. This fin is some three or four feet long, growing vertically from the hinder part of the back, of an angular shape and with a very sharp pointed end. Even if not the slightest other part of the creature be visible, this isolated fin will, at times, be seen plainly projecting from the surface. When the sea is moderately calm and slightly marked with spherical ripples, and this gnome-like fin stands up and casts shadows upon the wrinkled surface, it may well be supposed that the watery circle surrounding it somewhat resembles a dial, with its style and wavy hour lines graved on it. On the Ahaz dial, the shadow often goes back. The finback is not gregarious. He seems a whale-hater, as some men are men-haters, very shy, always going solitary, unexpectedly rising to the surface in the remotest and most sullen waters, his straight and single lofty jet rising like a tall misanthropic spear upon a barren plain. Gifted with such wondrous power and velocity in swimming as to defy all present pursuit from man, this leviathan seems the banished and unconquerable cane of his race, bearing for his mark that style upon his back. From having the baleen in his mouth, the finback is sometimes included with the right whale among the theoretical species denominated whalebone whalus, that is, whales with baleen. Of these so-called whalebone whales, there would seem to be several varieties, most of which, however, are little known. Broad-nosed whales and beaked whales, pike-headed whales, bunched whales, underjawed whales, and rostrated whales are the fishermen's names for a few sorts. In connection with this appellative of whalebone whales, it is of great importance to mention that however such a nomenclature may be convenient in facilitating allusions to some kind of whales, yet it is in vain to attempt a clear classification of the leviathan founded upon either his baleen, or hump, or fin, or teeth, notwithstanding that those marked parts or features very obviously seem better adapted to afford a basis for a regular system of cytology than any other detached bodily presentations, which the whale in his kinds presents. How then? The baleen, hump, backfin, and teeth, these are things whose peculiarities are indiscriminately dispersed among all sorts of whales without any regard to what may be the nature of this structure in other or more essential particulars. Thus, the sperm whale and the humpbacked whale each has a hump, but there the similitude ends. Then, this same humpbacked whale and the Greenland whale, each of them has baleen. But there again, the similitude ceases. And it is just the same with the other parts above mentioned. In various sorts of whales, they form such irregular combinations, or in case of any one of them detached, such an irregular isolation, as utterly to defy all general methodization formed upon such a basis. On this rock, every one of the whale naturalists has split. But it may possibly be conceived that in the internal parts of the whale, in his anatomy, there at least we shall be able to hit upon the right classification. Nay, what thing, for example, is there in a Greenland whale's anatomy more striking than his baleen? Yet we have seen that by his baleen it is impossible correctly to classify the Greenland whale. 
And if you s descend into the bowels of the various leviathans, why there you will not find distinctions a fiftieth part as available to the systematizer as those external ones already enumerated. What then remains? Nothing but to take hold of the whales bodily in their entire liberal volume and boldly sort them that way. And this is the biographical system here adopted, and it is the only one that can possibly succeed, for it alone is practicable. To proceed. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 4, Humpback. This whale is often seen on the northern American coast. He has been frequently captured there and towed into harbor. He has a great pack on him like a peddler. Or you might call him the elephant and castle whale. At any rate, the popular name for him does not sufficiently distinguish him since the sperm whale also has a hump, though a smaller one. His oil is not very valuable. He has baleen, he is the most gamesome and light-hearted of all the whales, making the more gay foam, and white water generally than any other of them. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 5, Razorback. Of this whale little is known but his name. I have seen him at a distance off Cape Horn. Of the a retiring nature, he eludes both hunters and philosophers. Though no coward, he has never yet shown any part of him but his back, which rises in a long, sharp ridge. Let him go. I know little more of him, nor does anybody else. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 6, Sulphur Bottom Another retiring gentleman, with a brimstone belly, doubtless got by scraping along the Tartarian tiles in some of his profounder divings. He is seldom seen, at least... I have never seen him except in the remoter southern seas, and then always at too great a distance to study his countenance. He is never chased. He would run away with rope walks of line. Prodigies are told of him. Adieu, Sulphur Bottom. I can say nothing more than it is true of ye, nor can the oldest Nantucketer. Thus ends Book One, Folio, and now begins Book Two, Octavo. Octavos. Footnote. Why this book of whales is not denominated the quarto is very plain, because while the whales of this order, though smaller than those of the former order, nevertheless retain a proportionate likeness to them in figure, yet the bookbinder's quarto volume is, in its dimensional form, does not preserve the shape of the folio volume, but the octavo volume does. Octavos. Footnote. Why this book of whales is not denominated the quarto is very plain. Because while the whales of this order, though smaller than those of the former order, nevertheless retain the proportionate likeness to them in figure, yet the bookbinder's quarto volume in its diminished form does not preserve the shape of the folio volume, but the octavo volume does. End footnote. These embrace the whales of middling magnitude. Among them present may be numbered 1. The Grampus 2. The Blackfish 3. The Narwhal 4. The Thrasher Five, the killer. Book two, octavo, chapter one, Grampus. Though this fish, whose loud sonorous breathing, or rather blowing, has furnished a proverb to landsmen, is so well known a denizen of the deep, yet is he not properly classed among whales. But possessing all the grand distinctive features of the leviathan, most naturalists have recognized him for one. He is of moderate octavo size, varying from 15 to 25 feet in length and of corresponding dimensions round the waist. He swims in herds. He is never regularly hunted, though his oil is considerable in quantity, and pretty good for light. 
By some fishermen, his approach is regarded as premonitory of the advance of the great sperm whale. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 2, Blackfish. I give the popular fishermen's names for all these fish, for generally they are the best. Where any name happens to be vague or inexpressive, I shall say so and suggest another. I do so now. Touching the name Blackfish, so-called because blackness is the rule amongst all whales, so call him the hyena whale, if you please. His veracity is well known. From the circumstances that the inner angles of his lips are curved upwards, he carries an everlasting Mephistophelian grin on his face. This whale averages some 16 or 18 feet in length. He is found in almost all latitudes. He has a peculiar way of showing his dorsal hooked fin in swimming, which looks something like a Roman nose. When not more profitably employed, the sperm whale hunters sometimes capture the hyena whale to keep up the supply of cheap oil for domestic employment, as some frugal housekeepers, in the absence of company and quite alone by themselves, burn unsavory tallow instead of odorous wax. Though their blubber is very thin, some of these whales will yield upwards of 30 gallons of oil. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 3, Narwhal, that is, Nostril Whale. Another instance of the curiously named whale, so named, I suppose, for his peculiar horn being originally mistaken for a peaked nose. The creature is some 16 feet in length, while its av horn averages 5 feet though some exceed ten, and even attain to fifteen feet. Strictly speaking, this horn is but a lengthened tusk, growing out from the jaw in a line a little depressed from the horizontal, but it is only found on the sinister side, which has an ill effect, giving its owner something analogous to the aspect of a clumsy left-handed man. What precise purpose this ivory horn or lance answers, it would be hard to say. It does not seem to be used like the blade of the swordfish and billfish, though some sailors tell me that the narwhal employs it for a rake in turning over the bottom of the sea for food. Charlie Coffin said it was used for an ice piercer, for the narwhal, rising to the surface in the polar sea and finding it sheeted with ice, thrusts his horn up and so breaks through but you cannot prove either of these surmises to be correct. My own opinion is that, however, this one-sided horn may really be used by the narwhal, however that may be, it would certainly be very convenient to him for a folder in reading pamphlets. The narwhal I have heard called the tusked whale, the horned whale, and the unicorn whale. He is certainly a curious example of the unicornism to be found in almost every kingdom of animal nature. From certain cloistered old authors, I have gathered that the same sea unicorn's horn was in ancient days regarded as a great antidote against poison, and as such preparations of it brought immense prices. It was also distilled to a volatile salts for fainting ladies, the same way that the horns of the male deer are manufactured into heart's horn. Originally, it was in itself accounted an object of great curiosity. Black Letter tells me that Sir Martin Frobisher, on his return from that voyage when Queen Bess did gallantly wave her jeweled hand to him from a window of Greenwich Palace as his bold ship sailed down the Thames. When Sir Martin returned from that voyage, says Black Letter, on bended knees he presented Her Highness a prodigious long horn of the narwhal, which for a long period after hung in the castle at Windsor. 
An Irish author avers that the Earl of Leicester, on bended knees, did likewise present to Her Highness another horn pertaining to a land beast of the unicorn nature. The narwhal has a very picturesque, leopard-like look, being of a milk-white ground color dotted with round and oblong spots of black. His oil is very superior, clean and fine, but there is little of it, and he is seldom hunted. He is mostly found in the circumpolar seas. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 4, Killer. Of this whale, little is precisely known to the Nantucketer, and nothing at all to the professional naturalist. From what I have seen of him at a distance, I should say that he is about the bigness of a grampus. He is very savage, a sort of Fiji fish. He sometimes takes the great folio whales by the lip and hangs there like a leech till the mighty brute is worried to death. The killer is never hunted. I never heard what sort of oil he has. Exception might be taken to the name bestowed upon this whale on the ground of its indistinctness, for we are all killers on land and sea, Bonapartes and sharks included. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 5, Thrasher. This gentleman is famous for his tail, which he uses for a ferule in thrashing his foes. He mounts the folio whale's back, and as he swims, he works his passage by flogging him, as some schoolmasters get along in the world by a similar process. Still less is known of the thrasher than even of the killer. Both are outlaws, even in the lawless seas. Thus ends Book 2, Octavo, and begins Book 3, Duodecimo. Duodecimos. These include the smaller whales. 1. The Huzzah porpoise. 2. The Algerine porpoise. 3. The Mealy-mouthed porpoise. To those who have not chanced specially to study the subject, it may possibly seem strange that fishes not commonly exceeding 4 or 5 feet would be marshaled among whales, a word which in popular sense always conveys an idea of hugeness. But the creatures set down above as duodecimos are infallibly whales by the terms of my definition of what a whale is, i.e. a spouting fish with a horizontal tail. Book 3, Duodecimo, Chapter 1, Huzzah Porpoise This is the common porpoise found almost all over the globe. The name is of my own bestowal, for there are more than one sort of porpoise, and something must be done to distinguish them. I call him thus because he always swims in hilarious shoals, which upon the broad sea keep tossing themselves to heaven like caps in a 4th of July crowd. Their appearance is generally hailed with delight by the mariner. Full of fine spirits, they invariably come from the breezy billows to windward. They are the lads that always live before the wind. They are accounted a lucky omen. If you yourself can withstand three cheers at beholding these vivacious fish, then heaven help ye, the spirit of godly gainsomeness is not in you. A well-fed, plump, huzzah porpoise will yield you one good gallon of good oil, but the fine and delicate fluid extracted from its jaws is exceedingly valuable. It is in request among jewelers and watchmakers. Sailors put it on their hones. Porpoise meat is good eating, you know. It may never have occurred to you that a porpoise spouts. Indeed, his spout is so small that it is not very readily discernible. But the next time you have a chance, watch him, and you will see the great sperm whale himself in miniature. Book 3, Duodecimo, Chapter 2, Algerine Porpoise A pirate, 
Very savage. He is only found, I think, in the Pacific. He is somewhat larger than the Huzzah porpoise, but much of the same general make. Provoke him, and he will buckle to a shark. I have lowered for him many times, but never yet saw him captured. Book 3. Duodecimo, Chapter 3. Mealy-mouthed porpoise. The largest kind of porpoise, and only found in the Pacific, so far as it is known. The only English name by which he has hitherto been designated is that of the fishers, right whale porpoise, from the circumstance that he is chiefly found in the vicinity of that folio. In shape he differs in some degree from the huzzah porpoise, being of a less rotund and jolly girth. Indeed, he is of quite a neat and gentlemanlike figure. He has no fins on his back, most porpoises have, he has a lovely tail and a sentimental Indian eyes of a hazel hue, but his mealy mouth spoils all. Though his entire back down to his side fins is of a deep sable, yet a boundary line distinct as the mark in a ship's hull called the bright waist, that line streaks him from stem to stern with two separate colors, black above and white below. The white comprises part of his head and the whole of his mouth, which makes him look as if he has just escaped from a felonious visit to a meal bag. A most mean and mealy aspect. His oil is much like that of the common porpoise. Beyond the duodecimo, the system does not proceed, inasmuch as the porpoise is the smallest of the whales. Above you have all the leviathans of note. But there are a rabble of uncertain, fugitive, half-fabulous whales, which, as an American whaleman, I know by reputation, but not personally. I shall enumerate them by their forecastle appellations, for possibly such a list may be valuable to future investigators who may complete what I have here but begun. If any of the following whales shall hereafter be caught and marked, then he can readily be incorporated into this system according to his folio, octavo, or duodecimo magnitude. The bottlenose whale, the junk whale, the pudding-headed whale, the cape whale, the leading whale, the cannon whale, the scrag whale, the coppered whale, the elephant whale, the iceberg whale, the quag whale, the blue whale, etc. From Icelandic, Dutch, and Old English authorities there might be quoted other lists of uncertain whales blessed with all manner of uncouth names, but I admit them here as altogether obsolete, and can hardly help suspecting them for mere sounds, full of leviathanism, but signifying nothing. Finally, it was stated at the outset that this system would not be here, and at once, perfected. You cannot but plainly see that I have kept my word. But I now leave my cetological system standing thus unfinished, even as the great cathedral of Cologne was left, with the cranes still standing upon the top of the uncompleted tower. For small erections may be finished by their first architects. Grand ones, true ones, ever leave the copestone to posterity. God keep me from ever completing anything. This whole book is but a draft, nay, but a draft of a draft. O oh, time, strength, cash, and patience. Chapter 33. The Snyder. Concerning the officers of the whalecraft, this seems as good a place as any to set down a little domestic peculiarity on shipboard, arising from the existence of the harpooner class of officers, a class unknown, of course, in any other marine than the whale fleet. 
The large importance attached to the harpooner's vocation is evinced by the fact that originally in the old Dutch fishery, two centuries and more ago, the command of a whale ship was not wholly lodged in the person now called the captain, but was divided between him and an officer called the specksnyder. Literally, this word means fat cutter. Usage, however, in time made it equivalent to chief harpooner. In those days, the captain's authority was restricted to the navigation and general management of the vessel, while over the whale-hunting department and all its concerns, the specksnyder, or chief harpooner, reigned supreme. In the British Greenland fishery, under the corrupted title specksioneer, this old Dutch official is still retained, but his former dignity is sadly abridged. At present, he ranks simply as senior harpooner, and as such is but one of the captain's more inferior subalterns. Nevertheless, it is upon good conduct of the harpooners the success of a whaling voyage largely depends, and since in the American fishery he is not only an important officer in the boat, but under certain circumstances, night watches on a whaling ground, the command of the ship's deck is also his. Therefore, the grand political maxim of the sea demands that he should nominally live apart from the men before the mast and be in some way distinguished as their professional superior, though always, by them, familiarly regarded as their social equal. Now, the grand distinction between officer and man at sea is this. The first lives aft, the last forward. Hence, in whale ships and merchantmen alike, the mates have their quarters with the captain, and so too, in most of the American whalers, the harpooners are lodged in the after part of the ship. That is to say, they take their meals in the captain's cabin and sleep in a place indirectly communicating with it. Though the long period of a southern whaling voyage by far the longest of all voyages now or ever made by man, the peculiar perils of it and the community of interest prevailing among the company, all of whom, high or low, depending for their profits not upon fixed wages but upon their common luck, together with their common vigilance, intrepidity, and hard work, though all these things do in some cases tend to beget a less rigorous discipline than in merchantmen generally, yet never mind how much like an old Mesopotamian family these whalemen may, in some primitive instances, live together, for all that, the punctilious externals, at least of the quarter-deck, are seldom materially relaxed, and in no instance done away. Indeed, many are the Nantucket ships in which you will see the skipper parading his quarter-deck with an elated grandeur not surpassed in any military navy, nay, extorting almost as much outward homage as if he wore the imperial purple and not the shabbiest of pilot-cloth. And though of all men the moody captain of the Pequod was the least given to that sort of shallowest assumption, and though the only homage he ever exacted was implicit, instantaneous obedience, Though he required no man to remove the shoes from his feet ere stepping upon the quarter-deck, as though there were times when, owing to the peculiar circumstances connected with events hereafter to be detailed, he addressed them in unusual terms, whether of condescension or in terrorem, or otherwise, yet even Captain Ahab was by no means unobservant of the paramount forms and usages of the sea nor, perhaps, will it fail to be eventually perceived that, behind those forms and usages, as it were, he sometimes masked himself, incidentally making use of them for other and more private ends than were legitimately intended to subserve. 
that certain sultanism of his brain, which had otherwise in a good degree remained unmanifested th through these forms, that same sultanism became incarnate in an irresistible dictatorship. For be a man's intellectual superiority what it will, it can never assume the practical, available supremacy over other men without the aid of some sort of external arts and entrenchments, always in themselves more or less paltry and base. This is it, that forever keeps God's true princes of the empire from the world's hustings, and leaves the highest honors that this heir can give to those men who become famous more through their infinite inferiority than the choice hidden handful of the divine inert, than through their undoubted superiority over the dead level of the mass. Such large virtue links in these small things when extreme political superstitions invest them, that in some royal instances, even to idiot imbecility, they have imparted potency. But when, as in the case of Nicholas the Tsar, the ringed crown of geographical empire encircles an imperial brain, then the plebeian herds crouch, abased before the tremendous centralization. Nor will the tragic dramatist who would depict mortal indomitableness in his fullest sweep and direct swing ever forget a hint, incidentally so important in his art, as the one now alluded to. But Ahab, my captain, still moves before me in all his Nantucket grimness and shagginess, and in this episode touching emperors and kings, I must not conceal that I have only to do with a poor old whale-hunter like him, and therefore all outward majestical trappings and housings are denied me. O oh, Ahab, what shall be grand in thee? It must needs be plucked at from the skies, and dived for in the deep, and featured in the unbodied air. Chapter 34. The Cabin Table. It is noon, and the doughboy, the steward, thrusting his pale loaf-of-bread face from the cabin scuttle, announces dinner to his lord and master, who, sitting in the lee quarter-boat, has just been taking an observation of the sun, and is now mutely reckoning the latitude on the smooth, medallion-shaped tablet reserved for that daily purpose on the upper part of his ivory leg. From his complete inattention to the tidings, you would think that Moody Ahab had not heard his menial. But presently, catching hold of the mizzen shrouds, he swings himself to the deck, and in an even unexhilarated voice, saying, Dinner, Mr. Starbuck, disappears into the cabin. When the last echo of his sultan's step has died away, and Starbuck, the first emir, has every reason to suppose that he is seated, then Starbuck rouses from his quietude, takes a few turns along the planks, and after a grave peep into the binnacle, says, with some touch of pleasant, Dinner, Mr. Staub, and descends the scuttle. The second emir lounges about the rigging a while, and then silently shaking the main brace to see whether it will be all right with that important rope. He likewise takes up the old burden, and with a rapid, Dinner, Mr. Flask, follows after his predecessors. But the third emir, now seeing himself all alone on the quarter-deck, seems to feel relieved from some curious restraint, for, tipping all sorts of knowing winks in all sorts of directions and kicking off his shoes, he strikes into a sharp but noiseless squall of a hornpipe right over the Grand Turk's head, and then, by a dexterous slight, pitching his cap up into the mizzen-top for a shelf, he goes down rollicking so far at least as he remains visible from the deck, reversing all other processions by brightening up the rear with music. 
But ere stepping into the cabin doorway below, he pauses, ships a new face altogether, and then independent, hilarious little flask enters King Ahab's presence in the character of Objectus, or the slave. It is not the least among the strange things bred by the intense artificialness of sea usages that while in the open air of the deck some officers will, upon provocation, bear themselves boldly and defyingly enough towards their commander, yet ten to one let those very officers the next moment go down to their customary dinner in that same commander's cabin, and straight away their inoffensive, not to say deprecatory, and humble air towards him as he sits at the head of the table. This is marvelous, sometimes most comical. Wherefore this difference? A problem? Perhaps not. To have been Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and to have been Belshazzar not haughtily but courteously therein certainly must have been some touch of mundane grandeur. But he who in the rightly regal and intelligent spirit presides over his own private dinner table of invited guests, that man's unchallenged power and dominion of individual influence for the time, that man's royalty of state transcends Belshazzar's, for Belshazzar was not the greatest. Who has but once dined his friends has tasted what it is to be Caesar? It is a witchery of social czarship with which there is no withstanding. Now, if to this consideration you superadd the official supremacy of a shipmaster, then, by inference, you will derive the cause of that peculiarity of sea life just mentioned. Over his ivory inlaid table, Ahab presided like a mute, maned sea lion in the white coral beach, surrounded by his warlike but still deferential cubs. In his own proper turn, each officer waited to be served. They were as little children before Ahab, and yet in Ahab there seemed not to lurk the smallest social arrogance. With one mind, their intent eyes all fastened upon the old man's knife as he carved the chief dish before him. I do not suppose that for the world they would have profaned that moment with the slightest observation, even upon so neutral a topic as the weather. No. And when reaching out his knife and fork, between which the sliced beef was locked, Ahab thereby motioned Starbuck's plate towards him. The mate received his meat as though receiving alms, and cut it tenderly, and a little started if, perchance, the knife grazed against the plate and chewed it noiselessly, and swallowed it, not without circumspection. For, like the coronation banquet at Frankfurt, where the German emperor profoundly dines with the seven imperial electors, so these cabin meals were somehow solemn meals, eaten in awful silence. And yet, at table, old Ahab forbade not conversation, only he himself was dumb. What a relief it was to choking stub, when a rat made a sudden racket in the hold below, and poor little flask... He was the youngest son, and little boy of this weary family party. His were the shin-bones of the saline beef. His would have been the drumsticks. For Flask to have presumed to help himself, this must have seemed to him tantamount to larceny in the first degree. Had he helped himself at that table, doubtless, never more would he have been able to hold his head up in the honest world. Nevertheless, strange to say, Ahab never forbade him. And had Flask helped himself, the chances were Ahab had never so much as noticed it. Least of all did Flask presume to help himself to butter. Whether he thought the owners of the ship denied it to him, 
on account of its clotting his clear, sunny complexion, or whether he deemed that, on so long a voyage in such marketless waters, butter was at a premium, and therefore was not for him a subaltern. However it was, Flask, alas, was a butterless man. Another thing. Flask was the last person down at dinner, and Flask is the first man up. Consider, for hereby Flask's dinner was badly jammed in point of time. Starbuck and Stubb both had the start of him, and yet they also had the privilege of lounging in the rear. If Stubb, even, who is but a peg higher than Flask, happens to have but a small appetite and soon shows symptoms of concluding his repast, then Flask must bestir himself. He will not get more than three mouthfuls that day, for it is against holy usage for Stubb to precede Flask to the deck. Therefore, it was that Flask once admitted in private that ever since he had arisen to the dignity of an officer from that moment he had never known what it was to be otherwise than hungry, more or less. For what he ate did not so much relieve his hunger as to keep it immortal in him. Peace and satisfaction, thought Flask, have forever departed from my stomach. I am an officer, but... How I wish I could fish a bit of old-fashioned beef in the forecastle as I used to when I was before the mast. There's the fruits of promotion now. There's the vanity of glory. There's the insanity of life. Besides, if it were so that any mere sailor of the Pequod had a grudge against Flask in Flask's official capacity, all that sailor had to do in order to obtain ample vengeance was to go aft at dinner time and get a peep at Flask through the cabin skylight, sitting silly and dumbfounded before awful Ahab. Now Ahab and his three mates formed what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. After their departure, taking place in inverted order to their arrival, the canvas cloth was cleared, or rather was restored to some hurried order by the pallid steward, and then the three harpooners were bidden to the feast, they being its residuary legatees. They made a sort of temporary servants' hall of the high and mighty cabin. In strange contrast to the hardly tolerable constraint and nameless invisible domineerings of the captain's table was the entire carefree license and ease, the almost frantic democracy of those inferior fellows, the harpooners. While their masters, the mates, seemed afraid of the sound of the hinges of their own jaws, the harpooners chewed their food with such a relish that there was a report to it. They dined like lords, they filled their bellies like Indian ships, all day loading with spices. Such portentous appetites had Queequeg and Tashtigo that to fill out the vacancies made by the previous repast, often the pale doughboy was fain to bring on a great baron of salt junk, seemingly quarried out of a solid ox. And if he were not lively about it, if he did not go with a nimble hop, skip, and jump, then Tashtigo had an ungentlemanly way of accelerating him by darting a fork at his back, harpoon-wise. And once Dago, seized with a sudden humor, assisted Doughboy's memory by snatching him up bodily and thrusting his head into a great empty wooden trencher, while Tashtigo, knife in hand, began laying out the circular preliminary to scalping him. He was naturally very nervous, shuddering sort of little fellow, this bread-faced steward, the progeny of a bankrupt banker and a hospital nurse. And what with the standing spectacle of the black terrific Ahab and the periodical tumultuous visitations of these three savages, Doughboy's whole life was one continual lip-quiver. Commonly, after seeing the harpooners furnished with all the things they demanded, he would escape from their clutches into his little pantry adjoining and fearfully peep out at them through the blinds of its door till all was over. 
It was a sight to see Queequeg seated over against Tashtigo, opposing his filed teeth to the Indians. Crosswise to them, Dago seated on the floor for a bench would have brought his horse-plumed head to the low car lines, at every motion of his colossal limbs making the low cabin framework to shake, as when an African elephant goes passenger in a ship. But for all this, the great Negro was wonderfully abstemious, not to say dainty, it seemed hardly possible that by such comparatively small mouthfuls he could keep up the vitality diffused through so broad, baronial, and superb a person. But doubtless this noble savage fed strong and drank deep of the abounding element of air, and through his dilated nostrils snuffed in the sublime life of the worlds. Not by beef or by bread are giants made and or nourished. But Queequeg, he had a mortal, barbaric smack of the lip in eating, an ugly sound enough, so much so that the trembling doughboy almost looked to see whether any marks of teeth lurked in his own lean arms. And when he would hear Tashtigo singing out for him to produce himself that his bones might be picked, the simple-witted steward all but shattered the crockery hanging round him in the pantry by his sudden fits of the palsy. Nor did the whetstone which the harpooners carried in their pockets for their lances and other weapons, and with which whetstones, at dinner, they would ostentatiously sharpen their knives, that grating sound did not at all tend to tranquilize poor Doughboy. How could he forget that in his island days Queequeg, for one, must certainly have been guilty of some murderous convivial indiscretions? Alas, Doughboy! Hard fares the white waiter who waits upon cannibals. Not a napkin should he carry on his arm, but a buckler. In good time, though, to his great delight, the three salt-sea warriors would rise and depart to his credulous, fable-mongering ears, all their martial bones jingling in them at every step, like Moorish scimitars in scabbards. But though these barbarians dined in the cabin and nominally lived there, still, being anything but sedentary in their habits, they were scarcely ever in it except at mealtimes and just before sleeping time, when they passed through it to their own peculiar quarters. In this one matter, Ahab seemed no exception to most American whale captains, who, as a set, rather inclined to the opinion that by rights the ship's cabin belongs to them, and that it is by courtesy alone that anybody else is, at any time, permitted there, so that, in real truth, the mates and harpooners of the Pequod might more properly be said to have lived out of the cabin than in it. For when they did enter it, it was something as a street door enters a house, turning inwards for a moment only to be turned out the next, and as a permanent thing residing in the open air. Nor did they lose much hereby. In the cabin was no companionship. Socially, Ahab was inaccessible. Though nominally included in the census of Christendom, he was still an alien to it. He lived in the world as the last of the grizzly bears lived in settled Missouri. And as when spring and summer had departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, sucking on his own paws, so in his inclement, howling old age, Ahab's soul shut up in the caved trunk of his body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. 
Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.